0: Welcome to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. I'm Sarah of Sarah's Bookshelves. Each week I talk with a bookish guest about two old books they love, two new books they love, one book they do not love, and one new release they're excited about. We're going to get real and sometimes a bit snarky about all things books. If you like the show, I'd love it if you follow the show in your podcast player. Spread the word to your reader friends, post about it on your social media, or support the show on Patreon at patreon dot com slash Bookshelves. Supporting the show on Patreon gets you access to bonus podcast episodes and lots of other goodies. There's also a link in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. Let's get rolling. Welcome to our 2023 debuts special. And what we mean by debuts is an author's first book or first novel. As usual for our annual debuts episodes, Susie from Novel Visits is joining me today. Welcome back, Susie.
1: Hi, Sarah. This is one of my very favorite episodes to do.
0: And it was your idea.
1: It was. That's because I've always loved debuts.
0: Yes, and it's been a really successful episode for us. So thank you for that. You're welcome. All right, so here's how today's gonna work. We're gonna start out by sharing some of our debut stats for the year so far. And then we are gonna get into the debuts that we loved, as well as a little bit of sophomore novel. Because for me, at least, sophomore novels have been great in 2023. So we're going to share our favorite debuts of 2023 first. Then we're going to share a couple favorite backlist debuts. And then we're going to share our favorite sophomore novels of 2023. So starting off with stats, I noticed a theme this year for me as it relates to debuts. And it was not a great theme. I would prefer this to not be the case in 2024. But the biggest thing that stands out for me is that We were really lacking in big name debuts this year, at least ones that I loved. Like last year, I remember Lessons in Chemistry was huge. The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich was huge. This year, the 2023 debuts that I have loved have been a little bit more under the radar and a little bit more heavily weighted towards nonfiction than in the past.
1: I agree with you for the most part, but I do think there have been a couple more serious like literary debuts, like In Memoriam, that were really big. And I also think Shark Heart got a lot of love.
0: That is getting big late in the year. Yeah, growing and growing. Yes. And it didn't come out until late summer, so it's kind of just picking up steam right now.
1: Yes. But I do agree that overall, the quality and volume of debuts has been less this year than in past years. And interestingly, half of my DNFs this year have been debuts.
0: Oh, interesting. And
1: that's, that's unusual for
0: me. So for this year, I have read 28 debuts so far. That's 36% of my total reading. And that's Slightly down from 2022, 2021, more or less in line with where I normally am. But the issue for me has been the quality of the debuts I've read. 73% of all the debuts I've attempted have been successful. That includes my DNFs. Last year, that number was 74%. So that's kind of okay. But here's where things fall off a bit. Of the debuts I've finished, only 79% have been successful, whereas last year I was at 90%.
1: Oh, wow. Well, last year seems unusually high.
0: Yeah. Well, and and overall, I feel like last year was a just stratospheric year for books, at least for my taste.
1: I think so too. And interestingly, last year when we recorded this show, I had read 120 books at that point. And of those last year, 50 were debuts. So that percentage was 42%. This year, I'm one book short of where I was last year. I've read 119 books, but only 35 of those have been debuts.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. So my percentage of debuts this year is 29.4%. And that is an all-time low for me. I'm generally somewhere between like 34 and 40%. Yeah. But my success rate is fairly consistent. Of the books I finished, the success rate for reviews is 89%. But when I add in those DNS, that brings me down to 74%. And I've been as low as 74% before, but usually I'm in the 80s. So that quality is down a little bit too. Yeah. And then as far as best books of the year go, Last year, my, my best books of the year in debuts was 33% of my best books were debuts. And interestingly, even though my debut numbers are down this year, I think my best books debut percentage will be up from 33%.
0: So you had a, a few standouts, maybe,
1: even though the quantity wasn't there. Exactly. I had some really great ones. This year, I have not been very ruthless about keeping my best books of the year stacked cut down. Usually I try to pull books out as I add more books in, but I haven't really done that. So right now in that stack there's 17 books and 8 of them are debuts. So that's 47%.
0: That's a good number.
1: Yeah. We'll, but we'll see what actually ends up in the pick in the end. How about you for end of the year?
0: Not looking great actually. Right now, I would say 3. Ooh. Yeah, and that's there've been years where I've been half of my list has been debuts. Last year that was not the case. Last year, I ended up at 30%, even though I predicted I would end up at 50% when we did this episode. So two of my debuts ended up falling off at the tail end.
1: You know and I just think that's so hard because my feelings about books change over time. And so, yeah. So it's
0: hard to predict. And by the way, we're recording this at the very end of September, just so everybody can timestamp where we are in our reading this year. Yeah. I will also say that I'm disappointed in myself, or I don't know, maybe it's just the way the books fell this year. I usually love to have a lot of debut authors on the podcast, and I did not do that this year. Only two of my 10 author guests for this year were debut authors. Yeah, that's 20%. And last year, it was 38%. And in 2021, it was 65%. Wow. Wow. Yeah, don't love that for myself. Also, one of the debut authors I had on this year was actually a debut author from last year. Oh, that's right. I just had her on the show early in the year this year. All right, let's get into our favorite debuts of 2023 so far. And I say so far, there is nothing on the horizon right now that I can see being added to my list at this point in the year.
1: Me either, but you never know.
0: You never know. That's very true. Before I get into my first debut, that... I loved. I do want to briefly mention The Many Lives of Mama Love by Laura Love Harden. That is a memoir. It is also a debut. It is five stars. One of my favorite overall books of the year and one of my favorite debuts of the year, but I'm I'm not going to share it as one of my picks today because we have talked about it at length on the show. We've had Laura on the podcast, so I didn't want to waste your time with that. Okay. All right. So, Right after Susie and I recorded the 2023 microgenres episode that aired this summer, I came across a five-star book that fell in one of the micro genres I highlighted in that episode. And that micro genre is intense love stories that most definitely are not romances, which is still holding tight at my number one microgenre spot. <laughs> and the new entry into this is Talking at Night by Claire Daverly. It came out in June. This is a love story between Rosie and Will, who met in high school. They initially form a relationship through late-night conversations, hence the title, before they hit some very real and large roadblocks. And I've been a little more vague here than the publisher's blurb is. I went in very blind. I'm very glad I did. So I wanted to give you all the same courtesy. Basically, I picked up this book because I saw Annie Jones from From the Front Porch podcast describe it as, quote, it should be right up there with The Rachel Incident or Normal People, maybe with a dash of The Paper Palace or One Day. All books I loved, but I'll address those comparisons in a minute. This is a 400-page character-driven novel. I flew through it in three days. I just sank into this story. I would describe this as definitely intense, definitely non-traditional love story, and not in the sort of effed-up love story category. Yeah. Yeah. The obstacles this couple has are real and not in the vein of, oh, the guy's a sociopath, like Tell Me Lies was. (laughs) (laughs) And I do agree with Annie Jones's comparison to Normal People by Sally Rooney, also a book I loved. But I would say Talking at Night has less of the millennial angst that that book had. I also agree to a certain extent with her comparison to The Paper Palace, less so with The Rachel Incident.
1: Yeah, I don't see the Rachel incident either.
0: I didn't either. And, and the the vibe and the feel of those two books, are, I feel like, are really different. I would add a book called I Could Live Here Forever by Hannah Halperin to this comparison list, and I'll be telling you more about that later in this episode. So that's all I'm going to tell you about this book. It's just a story about these two people that I was completely engrossed in. I was invested in what was going to happen to them. And I will also say it's taken off within our Patreon community. I feel like a lot of people have been reading it and loving it in there and talking about it in our Facebook group. I will also give one caveat. It does not have any quotation marks, if that bothers you. I did not get bothered by it.
1: Yeah, I I barely even noticed that anymore. Yeah. This was actually one of my very favorite debuts of the year, too. So I really adored everything about it. And, you know, I always like a good angsty love story. Oh.
0: This one isn't overly angsty, though.
1: No, but there's still plenty of angst in it.
0: <laughs> yes, but not in like a super annoying way. Not in
1: a painful way like normal people.
0: Yes. So that's Talking at Night by Claire Daverly. Susie, what's your first pick?
1: My first debut today was my first five-star read of 2023, and I predicted then that it would still be here at the end of the year for me, and that prediction is proving correct. And it is Go as a River by Shelley Reed. This is historical fiction set in 1948 when Victoria Nash is 17 and the only female left on her family's Colorado peach farm. Her life has already had a lot of tragedy between World War II that's just over and a tragic car accident that took three of the people she loved most. So she's a girl with a lot of responsibilities on her shoulders, and she meets a man, Will, who everyone else in town deems as an outcast, and he's hated for the color of her skin, but Victoria has her own ideas and follows her heart and steers her life down some unexpected paths. For me, this was historical fiction done right. The context of the whole story really fit perfectly in the era that it was set, the 40s to the 70s, and that kind of mid-century era has become one that I have really loved, and I'm really kind of searching for books that take place in that era. And this, w- this book sort of set it off for me, and I've read quite a few this year.
0: Micro-genre for you.
1: <laughs> I know, I know <laughs> that. Besides just historical fiction, though, this also has elements of a coming-of-age story, during the first half of it especially, which made it sort of a great genre mashup. The author herself is from Colorado, and that was so evident in the writing because her descriptions of the settings and the locations truly brought the story to life and really made you feel like you were there. As I mentioned, it takes place on a peach farm, and I'm not kidding, I was just craving peaches the entire time I was reading this one. I have seen some kind of critical reviews of some of the choices of the main character in this book. But I have to say she was a character I really admired and the stories told by her in first person. So that also made it stand out and I think made me feel close to her. It's the story of a woman living on her own life in some very unexpected ways. So in those ways, she reminded me of Kaya and Where the Crawdads Sing. And just the last thing I want to say is this book has been an international bestseller and it comes to us. From yet another woman who's a little more seasoned, Reed is in her mid-50s, and this is her debut novel. So another great example of it never being too late.
0: She's like the Bonnie Garvis of 2023.
1: Yes, she is. And so that was Go as a River by Shelley Reed.
0: I've still got that sitting on my Kindle, and I do want to give it a try. I think you should. Put that on my try-before-the-end-of-the-year TBR list. (laughs) All right, my next pick is... A book that I shared my thoughts about on the Summer Circle Back episode, but I'm bringing it back because I really want to give it some more attention. I don't think it's getting the attention it deserves, and there's some marketing stuff that I think misconstrue what this book actually is. It is such an underrated gem. It's The Art of Scandal by Regina Black. And this is a contemporary romance, but it has more to it than just a rom-com. It's actually not a rom-com at all. So this is a rom Paul. Rom com political drama? <laughs> is that a thing? A poll rom? <laughs> that doesn't sound as good as rom com. <laughs> so, our main character is Rachel, and she gets a text from her husband with a picture of his male parts during his birthday party. They're both in the same house at the same party at this time. She quickly realizes that the picture was not meant for her, and her husband is a prominent mayor and has ambitions for higher office. So, he strikes a deal with Rachel. To play the perfect political trophy wife until his election. Of course, things are not that simple. To me, this is more than just a romance and more than just a political drama. Romance in this story is a tool in service of something greater. And that something greater in this case is reclaiming yourself. And I loved this. The true romance here might be Rachel finding out how to love herself. It's also about being in an interracial relationship. Rachel and her husband are in an interracial relationship. It's about marriage. It's about the role art can play in discovering yourself. It's about appearances versus reality. This comes through with all the charade you have to put on for political reasons. And I love that kind of stuff. The opening scene is fantastic. I was dying laughing at Regina Black's description of her husband's lawyer friends at the birthday party and how just, like, annoying frat boy they were acting. My one quibble here, and this is where we're going to get into the marketing, the cover of this book I don't think conveys what the book is. It makes it look like any run-of-the-mill, just romance that relies on steaminess. And it does not convey the additional heft this book has and the themes of really finding and loving yourself. The cover, the cover has a male and a female on it. I almost wish the cover had just had a female on it. Yeah. That's the true love story here.
1: I think that can make a big difference, especially for people who aren't romance fans. Because when I see those kind of covers, it's just like, okay, no, that's not for me. Based on the cover, I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. Oh, if I had seen only the cover, I never would have picked this up. I think what I saw about it first was that it was a romance slash political drama. And the political drama part mixed with romance intrigued me. Yeah. So that's why I picked it up. And yeah, I just want everyone to understand that it's not what it appears to be. (laughs) It's a lot better than what it appears to be. And that is The Art of Scandal by Regina Black. Susie, what is your next pick?
1: Well, my next pick is, I would also say, is an underrated gem for this year. The reviews I've seen have been positive, but I haven't seen nearly enough reviews of it. The book is called Wandering Souls by Cecile Penn. This is literary fiction, but also with historical elements to it. Some would probably call it historical fiction. It's the story of three siblings who fled Vietnam for Hong Kong after the fall of Saigon. Their parents and four younger siblings were to follow, but their boat sank, leaving 16-year-old on in charge of her brothers, Thon and Minh. And they were definitely strangers in a strange land. And then the three are eventually relocated to the United Kingdom, where they struggle to build a life entirely different from what they'd known and what they'd always dreamt of. So I loved this book, but I didn't share it earlier in the year because it came at a time when I'd been reading a lot of great books. Plus, it's one of those books that the further I get away from it, the more impact it's had on me. My initial rating was 4.5 stars, and today I might even give it a full five stars. Part of the reason for that is that this is a really haunting story in many ways, and it's haunted me too. But the three siblings in the story are also haunted in different ways because they survived when the rest of their family lost their lives. Recently, I feel like there's been a lot of books out about the aftereffects of the Vietnam War and life in Vietnam or life for people who have left Vietnam And there've been some really standout ones. And this one I would add to that list because, and I think her strong point in her writing is her character development. The characters were just so deep that you really felt like you knew these siblings and you understood the pain and hardships they were going through, not in just losing their family, but in trying to adjust to a new life. Making this book extra special was that it was told from multiple perspectives Primarily, it unfolded from on's perspective, but along the way, you also hear from one of the lost siblings, so you're sort of hearing from a ghost, and I know that might turn some people off. <laughs> Me. <laughs> it, well, <laughs> but it wasn't like that. It was, it, it, you would just have to take my word for it. I don't want to tell you how it was done, but it was done in a way that it wasn't like a ghost. And then there's also an unnamed narrator that you kind of have an idea of who it might be. And this is somebody who has a stake in An's life as well. I did listen to this one on audio and the voices there felt especially poignant and real. So I really liked it on audio. It's shown a strong light on the difficulties of being an immigrant and trying to adapt to a different culture, trying to fit in with people. So I'm really hoping more people will pick this up. And that is Wandering Souls. And I can't wait to see what this author does next. Yeah, I'd never even heard of that one. I know. A lot of people haven't. I mean, I definitely have seen reviews. And it's been nominated for awards. I believe it was nominated, I think, for the Women's Prize.
0: All right. My next pick is another five-star book. And I would say this is a must-read for parents of female athletes and female athletes themselves, especially younger ones like middle school and high school. It's not getting the attention it deserves despite its 4.52 average rating on Goodreads, probably because it is sort of niche and it is nonfiction. This is a memoir. So there's probably not that many reviews adding up to that. Right. But this is Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World by Lauren Fleshman. And this came out way back in January. Lauren Fleshman is a retired elite middle distance runner She was a decorated collegiate champion at Stanford and a national champion as a pro. She was sponsored by Nike before moving on to the female-led company Wassell. And she was the founder of Picky Bars and is now a coach and activist for women's sports. This book felt really groundbreaking to me, which is exciting, but also kind of depressing because (sighs) the fact that we're just getting this book now (laughs) and this stuff has been going on for decades because I remember it when I was a swimmer when I was younger. And like Lauren herself, this book is an intersection of sports, business, and advocacy. So even if you're not super into sports, if you're into sort of women's rights and gender equality, this would appeal to you. And also if you're interested in entrepreneurship, because this whole way that she started Picky Bars and is working with Wassell to help improve the situation for women who are sponsored pro athletes really speaks to this entrepreneurship side. There's a lot in this book. It talks about girls' performance plateaus when they hit puberty and those girls subsequently quitting sports in high numbers at that age. That is exactly what happened to me with swimming. Mm-hmm. How women participate in sports in almost equal numbers to men yet receive a fraction of the attention and funding. Talks about the culture of compliance and coachability at the expense of personal well-being. And Simone Biles really brought this to the forefront in the 20. 21 Olympics, 20, I guess they're calling it 2020, in the 2020 Olympics when she pulled out of the gymnastics competition because she was having, she was having the twisties. Mental health. Yeah. Talks about eating disorders and body image. That's obviously, makes sense, right? And the daily struggle of being a pro athlete, having your livelihood tied to your performance, how injuries play into this and pregnancy. And it talks about running a feminist business and building a career of advocacy outside of your sports career. So I absolutely adored this. That is gro- Good for a Girl by Lauren Fleshman. Okay.
1: My next book is one I loved from the, really from the moment I picked it up, and I still love it today. So I don't think anybody will be too surprised to hear me say my next book is In Memoriam by Alice Wynn. This is another historical fiction. I, I'm having a moment with historical fiction this year.
0: Which is not usual for you. No, but I
1: have kind of sort of this year really explored the kind of historical fiction I like. And I feel like I've zeroed in on it a little bit. So you found your niche. Okay. So this one is just a gut punching juxtaposition of love and war. It begins in 1914, just after the start of World War I, when classmates Gaunt and Elwood and their large cadre of friends are still in school. And they don't really have very many worries, but talk of the war is all around them. And then also between Gaunt and Elwood is a strong attraction that neither is willing to fully acknowledge for fear of losing the other entirely or outing themselves. As the war progresses badly for the British, first Gaunt, then Elwood, and pretty much all of their friends feel compelled to join up. So obviously this was a five-star read for me, and it probably... Not probably. It did give me my longest, hardest book hangover of the year so far.
0: Is it going to be your number one pick
1: as of now? I don't really want to give that away, but it's right up there. It's in the top three for sure. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's hard to say. But – as I said, I feel like this has been an unusually good year for me with historical fiction and In Memoriam kind of helped kick it off. But then I've also had like The River We Remember, The Vaster Wilds. In this one, I really appreciated the history lesson because I've read a zillion books on World War II, but very little on World War One. So it was really eye-opening to see how, you know, really devastating that war was and how different war was fought way back then more hand-to-hand and in the trenches. It was really heartbreaking. And then the forbidden romance side of the story, when I say that, it's not really giving anything away because it comes up from the very beginning, the longing between these two characters. But I really appreciated how she used the war to give the the two men a sense of urgency about their feelings and their relationship and so that feeling that they needed to grab onto whatever they could because they might not outlive this war. And she wrote these characters and their complex personalities really beautifully. It was all, it was super hard for me to believe that this was a debut novel because the writing was just so strong in it. And those two characters in particular reminded me a little bit of Jude and Willem in A Little Life. And and then there was also a huge cast of supporting characters who you also came to love. And I wouldn't, huge might be too strong a word, but there were a lot of other men in the story that you followed and you cared about. And because it's a war story, no one really goes unscathed. And so in that way, it wasn't an easy book to read. And yet I could not put this book down. I finished it in, like, two days. And I didn't want to finish it, but I couldn't stop reading it. And that's In Memoriam by Alice Wynn.
0: I tried that earlier this year, and I think probably the timing was bad. I just couldn't concentrate on the very beginning. I think I read, like, ten pages.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you might have to give it a little bit more than that. I I have read reviews from other people that they thought the beginning was slow. Like, when is it going to get to the war? I didn't feel that way, but I can see
0: that critique. Right. I might come back to it at some point, probably not this year, but
1: you wouldn't do it, but I hear the audio is great.
0: Yeah, no, I cannot do that kind of fiction on audio, any fiction on audio, but especially high literary fiction on audio. All right. My last pick of my favorite debuts of 2023 is a super weird book that is appealing to a lot of people that don't normally like weird books. And that would include myself. (laughs) <laughs> I normally shy very hard away from books described as weird. But this is Shark Heart by Emily Haybeck. It came out in August. This is the story of Lewis and Wren, who are newly married, when Lewis slowly begins turning into a great white shark. <laughs> <laughs> He's given nine months before his transition will be complete. And the publisher's blurb gives you a lot more information than that. But that's really all you need. And that's all I went in knowing. I agree. I rated this four and a half stars. Not quite five stars, but it was almost there. The premise is obviously completely absurd. I actually saw this book months before it came out and completely gave it a hard pass. (laughs) I was like, no way. That's insane. But trusted readers who also don't normally like weird books ended up reading it closer to its release date and told me that I would like it. And they were right. So when I was reading this book, the whole turning into the great white shark thing did not feel as weird as it sounds on the surface. No. The way that she handled it and the way that she treated it like like an actual medical condition that existed in this world, it made me able to go along with it. I literally wrote in my notes, why is she able to make me completely just believe that this guy is turning into a great white shark? I know. I know. (laughs) It was crazy. (laughs) And other than this condition where, and not just great white sharks, people in this world can turn into various animals. But other than this condition, everything else in the world is totally normal. I think that's why you could accept it. Yes. Totally agree. And I sort of thought the story would focus on Lewis since he's the one turning into the shark. But I actually thought it was more Wren's story. And it turned out to be a little bit of a multi-generational family story relating to Wren. I didn't expect that. And I loved it.
1: Yeah, I I agree. It was definitely Wren's story.
0: Yeah. Although I was very curious about sort of how this disease was going to progress. And I thought she handled it beautifully, meaning Emily Haybeck now. I also thought this book was kind of sad but very touching. It made me sort of have faith in love and marriage in a very sweet, serious way. And it's 416 pages, but do not be worried about the length. It reads much faster than that. There's lots of really short chapters, some only one paragraph long. And then there's, I think there's like a screenplay in there somewhere. So there's just a lot of white space on the pages. So it reads a lot faster than it looks like it will. And obviously, Susie, you love this too.
1: I did. I love this too. This was one of my favorite debuts of the year too. That's sitting in my stack of 17. (laughs)
0: Um. I think this is the kind of book that has to pick up steam by word of mouth.
1: Yeah because it's just so weird. People will like people would yeah. message me and they're like, "Really? You liked a book about a guy turning into a shark?" And you just have to be like, "You just take my word for it. Just go go with it."
0: And you don't normally go along with outlandish plots.
1: No, I think I I think I'd seen, you know, some people who liked it and that's why I decided I was late to the party with it.
0: Yeah. Oh, me too. I didn't read it till after it came out.
1: I think I might have read it a little bit before it came out, but it's not like a book I put a request in four or six months ahead of time or anything. Sure.
0: And I, I saw it months in advance. I knew about it. I just knew about it, looked at it, and decided, no way.
1: <laughs> you saw a shark, and you ran the other way.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. And actually, I do find sharks very fascinating, but not humans turning into sharks. Except I, get, except I did. <laughs> Who knew? All right. That was Shark Heart by Emily Haybeck. Susie, what's your last pick?
1: My last pick is another underrated gem. It's called The Road to Dalton by Shannon Bowring. Came out in June. This almost seems like one of those books that doesn't have a plot, but trust me, it really does. The story takes place over a single year in Dalton, Maine. And in a way, it's a story kind of about the town as a whole. It's one of those small towns where everybody knows everybody else and knows what everybody else is doing but people look out for each other and sort of forgive each other's flaws and make friends when they can. They might have secrets and they might not always like each other, but they're willing to put up with each other because like it or not, they are living in a small place and their lives are connected. So another type of book that I've kind of come to like this year is Connected short stories. And this book, even though it really wasn't connected short stories, it had the feeling of being a little bit connected short stories. And the reason for that is because it's about this community, but every chapter is focused on a different character in the community, a different citizen of the town. And then within their stories, you meet other people from the town. And then later you might have a chapter about one of those people. And there's a thread going through all their stories. So they're connected. But it sort of just had that same feeling, similar to No Two Persons by Erica Bauermeister.
0: That's exactly what I was thinking about while you were talking.
1: <laughs> yeah, the two reminded me very much. Of, I, had read, I had read No Two Persons first, and then I read this one, but they reminded me very much of each other in that way. And of course, in something like that, some characters I enjoyed more than others, some chapters I enjoyed more than others, but I was always invested. Her writing again was really good. This was a quiet story that grew and grew the more chapters you read, because the more chapters you read, the clearer picture you got of that town of Dalton and tragedy and grief that people in it were going through. There was just something about it that really touched me. I loved all the people of Dalton, even the ones that weren't quite so lovable. This was also a story that I went into almost completely blind If I had read the synopsis, I don't think it would have spoiled it for me, but I hadn't read the synopsis, and I'm glad I didn't. It sort of gave me vibes of The Net Beneath Us by Carol Dunbar and A Town Called Solace* by Mary Larson. And it's only 250 pages, so you can get through it quickly. Trying to get to those reading goals, y'all. That's right. That's The Road to Dalton by Shannon
0: Bowering. All right. We're going to get into some favorite backlist debuts, and we're each going to share two picks. And I happen to have read both of my backlist picks this year. And Susie, has is that the case for you or no?
1: One this year and one is an older one.
0: Okay. So my first pick is a book that I've, I had heard a lot about. It came out in 2018, but I moved it to the top of my TBR this year after I interviewed Laura Love Harden, the author of The Many Lives of Mama Love on the podcast. And that is because she co-wrote the book I'm about to share which is The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. It's a memoir. Again, a lot of nonfiction this episode today for me, which is a perfect encapsulation of my debut's reading year. (laughs) (laughs) So Anthony Ray Hinton spent 30 years on death row in Alabama for two murders he did not commit. He was poor and black, and his court-appointed attorney failed him in his original trial. After spending decades going through the appeals process, Brian Stevenson, the author of the book Just Mercy, which has gotten a lot of attention, Brian Stevenson took on his case and finally got him exonerated. This is the story of how that happened and how Anthony Ray Hinton mentally worked through this. Also, y'all, this was a big Oprah pick back when it came out. Like, Oprah did a lot for this book. It was five stars for me. And you might expect a book like this to be a really tough book to get through, but I could not stop listening to this. The way that Hinton and Laura Love Harden tell his story is super compelling, which is not surprising because the way that Laura Love Harden told her own story in her, her memoir was very compelling as well. I think you would also expect a book like this to be full of anger. I mean, I sure would be angry if I was Anthony Ray Hinton. <laughs> yeah. But Hinton really took a different approach. The level of love and forgiveness coming out of him was truly mind-boggling and inspirational. And he even felt that towards a member of the KKK who he befriends on death row. And even though you know how the story turns out, the farther into the book I got, and the more avenues they try to get him out of prison to absolutely no avail, I was just dying to know how the heck they eventually managed to get him out. The story illuminates how the justice system favors the wealthy, you can pay for a proper defense, and the white, and Hinton would likely not even have been charged if he was white. I highly recommend this on audio. The narrator, Kevin Free, was so great. I could listen to that guy talk forever. It was almost a very soothing tone that he used. So, highly recommend this on audio.
1: I just looked this one up this morning and it's available on on Libby in my with my libraries. So,
0: there you go. That's The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. Susie, what's your first pick?
1: Okay, my first pick is a debut that I actually read this year and that is Severance by Ling Ma. The story centers on Candace Chen, a young millennial who's living in New York City at the start of a global pandemic. And I should mention before I go on that this book came out in 2018. Even before the beginning of the pandemic, Candace had had a few tough years. She'd lost both her parents and has just broken up with her boyfriend of four years, just as the city is beginning to shut down. Candace, of course, faces some tough decisions about living in this strange new world. This was a four-star book for me, and I liked it, for some rather strange reasons. One of them is that I've become a little obsessed with pandemic novels. (laughs) This is another micro genre for me now.
0: You and I are opposite on that one. I know, but there's such a, there's such a
1: range. Like this, this includes like where the pandemic doesn't really have that much to do with it. Like Tom Lake and Pete and Allison Maine. But then I also really like more speculative pandemic novels Many written long before COVID invaded our world. For example, Station 11, which I know you liked.
0: Oh, I think those are interesting because it almost foretold the future.
1: Exactly. And then The Dog Stars by Peter Heller. And then Severance also falls into that category. This was written before COVID.
0: Oh, oh, okay. Of course, 2018. All right. When you said pandemic, I was thinking COVID pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, that's so
1: this is a pre-COVID pandemic novel, but that's the next thing I want to talk about because what really stood out to me was how eerily similar the world Ma created was to our own in 2020. Ooh, yeah. She had, instead of a virus, she had a fungus arriving from China. Cities were slowly emptying out. People were being sent home to work. There were travel bans. New York City became a ghost town, masks, including N95s. Her pandemic was more deadly and in that way, very different than the COVID pandemic. But her imagination of what the world would be like was so spot on. It was just like it gave me chills. I had to keep reminding myself I was reading. This was written pre-COVID. So this was actually what she imagined. The story itself alternates between three timelines, which for some reason was a little jarring at first, and that's why it didn't get more than four stars for me. But I became more comfortable with it as the story progressed. And obviously, there are plenty of other characters in the book, but the story is all about Candace, who's a really complicated woman. At times, I thought she was nuts. And at other times I felt sorry for her, but I was always rooting for her. And this is a book I saw around a lot back in 2018. And it just, I think the whole pandemic thing didn't appeal to me, but now I've actually been kind of searching out pandemic novels. And that's why I picked up Severance by
0: Ling Ma. I think it was sort of a critical darling when it came out. It was on a lot of the highbrow, best books of the year list kind of thing.
1: I agree. It was all very familiar to me, but I just hadn't
0: read it. Yeah. All right. My next backlist debut was recommended to me by a patron of the show, Leanne Tucker-Hale. She also recommended that I go into this book completely blind, which I did, and I'm so glad I did. So I'm going to try to give you the very vaguest of overview here and also allow you to go in blind. The book is Blood Sugar by Sasha Rothschild, and it came out last year. I'm going to tell you that the story opens with our main character, Ruby who's a psychologist, and she is sitting in a police interrogation room when the story opens. That's it. This is a very character-driven thriller. It's definitely a slow burn. The publisher is calling in a thriller, you know, go in knowing it's a slow burn. There's a feminist lean to it. Ruby, our main character, is very relatable. There's a lot of nuance to her. Unsurprisingly, there's a lot of psychology in this story, and I loved that. Ruby is smart. She's very introspective. She asks interesting questions about human behavior and in particular about guilt. There's a bit of a love story and a bit of a friendship story. And this book is set in Miami, which if you see the cover, it's very like kind of almost neon colors. It's a very Miami looking cover. But that Miami setting is very vibrant. Sasha Rothschild really brings it to life. And in my attempt to sell you on a book without telling you anything about it, (laughs) I'm going to tell you that you should read this if, number one, you love a juicy psychological story. Number two, you love a slow burn. And I should say slow burn thriller, slow burn suspense, not just slow burn character driven, right? Number three, if you're interested in human behavior. And number four, if you want some suspense that feels different from the standard thrillers that are out there. That's all I can tell you. I don't want to – I loved not knowing any more when I went into this book.
1: Yeah, I'm curious about it, definitely.
0: That is Blood Sugar by Sasha Rothschild. Susie, what's your last pick? Okay,
1: my last pick – I the, the author of this book, I recently reviewed her newest book on – Instagram. And I mentioned that I'd read all of her books. So many people were asking me about her earlier works and what I'd recommend. And I always responded with her debut. And that is Our Endless Numbered Days by Claire Fuller. This book came out in 2015. And it follows eight-year-old Peggy and her survivalist father, James, who set out on what is supposed to be a summer vacation. They hike deep, deep in the woods to a dilapidated cabin and being so young, Peggy believes whatever James tells her and some of the things he starts telling her, and this is all very early in the book, is that her mother is dead and the rest of the world has simply fallen away and they're the last two people on earth and Peggy doesn't come out of the woods for nine years. This was actually the second Claire Fuller book I read. And the first was Swimming Lessons. And Sarah, I believe you told me to go back and read Our Endless Number Days.
0: Yeah, I loved this book.
1: Yeah. And so what I love about Fuller is that every one of her books is completely different from the other one. She is a completely original writer. And so it's it's just amazing. And this was a great kickoff to her career. The whole premise of this very off dad who's trying to save his daughter from the world immediately had me all in. And the story takes place over more than half of Peggy's life, so we see a lot of growth in her. And again, in many ways, that's this is also a coming-of-age story, though it's also a very suspenseful story and kind of literary, so a great genre mashup. It uses a dual timeline, moving back and forth between the time James and Peggy are in the cabin And later, when Peggy's older and back with her mom. So when I mentioned stuff about her mom, I wasn't, And the nine years, I wasn't giving anything away. It's told in first person by Peggy, who is an amazing and insightful narrator, which speaks to Fuller's writing, which is always wonderfully clear and thoughtful. Her prose are easy to read and have just the perfect amount of description in them. For me, this book was hard to put down. I gave it five stars. And I was surprised when I was looking it up on Goodreads that the Goodreads rating is only 3.67. And I'm guessing that's because there's some really tough parts to the story that might turn some people off. Yeah. But I do highly recommend it, especially if you've tried a couple of recent Claire Fuller books and want to know how she started out. And that is Our Endless Numbered Days by Claire Fuller. And I second
0: that. Good. All right. We're going to leave y'all with some sophomore novel winners from 2023 because sophomore slumps are kind of a thing that everybody talks about. So I want to highlight when there's a year where sophomore slumps is not the not the big story about sophomore books, right?
1: I might have a different story this year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> for me, I should say. Okay. So my number one pick, obviously, for this category is Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. But again, just like Laura Love Harden's. The Many Lives of Mama Love, I'm not going to use that for today's episode because y'all have already heard from her on the show. So my next pick is a book I mentioned earlier briefly, and I said I was going to come back to it. It falls in the micro genre of intense love story that is not a romance, and it was also five stars for me. This is I Could Live Here Forever by Hannah Halperin. I would say this is also one of my biggest underrated gems of the year. Just like with Blood Sugar, I'm going to tell you to to avoid the publisher's blurb. There's one sort of big thing that the publisher reveals that I didn't know when I read the book, and I enjoyed being able to discover it in the story. Oh, the one caveat is if you're sensitive to triggers, maybe do read the publisher's blurb. What I am going to tell you about this story is that it features Leah, a grad student in an MFA program in Madison, Wisconsin, and Charlie, a guy she meets in the checkout line at the grocery store. And then we get to explore their relationship. Here's why I don't want you to read the blurb. Charlie and Leah have this instantaneous, intense connection, but then something pretty small but kind of weird and unsettling would happen. And then they'd have this intense connection again, but then something else small but unsettling would happen. And this kind of went on and on. And and the blurb reveals why Mm -hmm. these small unsettling events happened And I enjoyed the process of trying to figure that out and just letting the story reveal itself. The publisher is calling this book an emotional page turner. I actually think that's very accurate. And I like that term. Yeah. This was very much a page turner for me, but not in a plot driven kind of way. More in a, I have to find out what's going to happen to these characters kind of way. I read it in two days. I couldn't put it down. Hannah Halperin's writing was masterful at making me feel for these people. I loved Charlie and Leah so much as a couple, but I also was terrified for them. It just, I was like, oh God, this this is going to go no place good. It's a sad and emotional story. And I did go back and read her debut novel after I finished this one. It's called Something Wild, and I really liked that as well. So this is I Could Live Here Forever by Hannah Halperin.
1: I really liked that book too. Good. All right. I haven't been as lucky as you with sophomore novels. In fact, the sophomore novels I read this year, there were only two that I actually liked. So I'll
0: I'll be sharing both of those today. Well, glad we're only sharing two. (laughs) (laughs) I I know. (laughs) I had to pick from a list of like nine. Oh, well, I didn't have that problem.
1: (laughs) The first is The Shadow of Perseus by Claire Haywood. This is a Greek mythology retelling of The Life of Perseus, But it's told from the perspectives of three of the important women in his life, his mother, Danae, Medusa, the woman he's known for slaying, and his wife, Andromeda. But Haywood does it in a unique way in that she tells the story, taking away all the help from the gods that Perseus gets in the actual original story. So as you know, I'm kind of a mythology retelling nerd. And this was a 4.5 read for me. I love when authors take a classic story and are able to change it up with a unique stance and removing the gods from Perseus's life was just what Haywood did and it was perfect for this story. I also really loved that the women told the story. I mean, he was kind of the main character because everything revolved around him, but they're the ones who got to tell you the story. And these women all truly despised Perseus in their own way. And they made you despise him too. It really showed to kind of how like an ego driven man can be a real threat to women. That came out over and over again in the story. So a classic theme. Perseus was one of those male characters who you love to hate, making it a fun story to read. And I happened to have read this book right after I read Stone Blind which is about Medusa, but Perseus plays a dominant role in it. So it was interesting to me to read two similar books, almost back to back. I'd say maybe I had a month between them. And I loved them both. Stone Blind was a five-star read. This is a 4.5-star read. So sometimes reading similar books together works out well. And that was The Shadow of Perseus by Claire Haywood.
0: All right. My last pick of the day is The Connellys of County Down by Tracy Lang. I know many of y'all loved her debut novel, We Are the Brennans, which I still haven't read, but I would like to. It's sitting in my house. This is a family drama, and the story centers around Tara Connolly, who at 30 years old is released from an 18-month stint in prison for a drug charge. She returns to her family home to live with her older sister, Geraldine, and her brother, Eddie. Geraldine more or less raised Tara and Eddie, and she is very tightly wound. Eddie is a single dad, and he's dealing with the ongoing effects of a traumatic brain injury that he suffered when he was younger. And in this setting, Tara needs to stay out of trouble and figure out how to rebuild her life. A central theme in this book is how hard it is to get on your feet after you get out of prison, which makes it an excellent fiction-nonfiction pairing with The Many Lives of Mama Love by Laura Love Harden. And I read them sort of close together, so that was a nice bookish serendipity for me. It's also a story about a family of siblings trying to weed through the impact of childhood trauma. And I love stories about adult siblings in particular and how family dynamics that become very entrenched in childhood still carry over into adulthood, and that was the case with this book. And the family drama portion of the story plays out in an interesting tangled web of a mess, That involves forces outside of the family. I loved it. It definitely gave, and I can't say what it is, but because that would be a spoiler, but it gave this family drama a different edge to it, as well as the whole getting on your feet when you get out of prison angle. This story is also really about overcoming shame, both Tara's shame from being in prison and Geraldine's and Eddie's from events and conditions from their earlier lives. If you love a family drama, but are looking for something that has a little bit, Different elements? I highly recommend The Connollys of County Down by Tracy Lang.
1: That that was one of my unsuccessful sophomore novels this year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Susie, what is your last
1: pick? Okay, my next sophomore novel is The Whispers by Ashley Audrain. As it opens, a 12-year-old boy has fallen from his third-story bedroom window and is in a coma. Readers are immediately left wondering how it happened, and his own mother is the chief suspect though there are others in the neighborhood who raise plenty of doubt. I was really excited about this book. In fact, it was one of the upcoming sophomore novels that I talked about last year. This was a 4.25 star book for me, which was slightly lower than her debut, The Push, which I gave five stars. And this one was very different from The Push, not as tense and not as shocking, a little bit slower but I was prepared for different, so none of that bothered me, and I know it did bother some people. This novel, though, also involves motherhood, just as The Push did, but it goes in a different direction, taking a deep dive into a genuinely flawed woman slash mother, and also the people around who, her who are willing to look the other way. I loved that the story was told from the perspectives of four different women all neighbors and all with problems and issues of their own. Through them, Audraine explored the darker, often painful side of motherhood. And really no one does that like her. This has sort of become her niche. So it will be interesting to see where she goes with her third book. And just like in The Push, the last sentence in this book left me gasping.
0: Oh, I have not yet heard that about this book.
1: Yes, and that's The Whispers by Ashley Audrain. I still need to get to this. Yeah, you know, I think I think it didn't get as much love as it should have because everybody was expecting the high drama of The Push. Right. And it was less dramatic.
0: I also think it might have been too dark for some people based on reviews I've read and
1: Well, The Push was pretty dark too.
0: Yes. <laughs> feel like I've heard this could be even darker.
1: Yeah, maybe,
0: maybe. What do you think? It was
1: darker in the the mystery, the traumatized person was falling on the mother and not the child. So they're more judgy over the mother.
0: Okay. Okay. I do need to give it a shot. I read the first couple pages this summer, but it wasn't the right time. I just was like, this isn't what I need right now. But I, I do want to go back based on some reviews from people I trust. I also obviously loved The Push, and I had Ashley on the podcast, and I love her, so. Yeah, give it another shot. All right. Thank you, Susie. You're welcome. Y'all, the October Superlatives episode for patrons will air at the end of the month, and it will include Susie and I's picks for categories like the most overrated debuts of 2023 and a debut we each think should be higher on the other one's TBR list. If you'd like to get this bonus episode plus others, you can support the show on Patreon. There is a link in my show notes and in my Instagram bio. And in two weeks, which is November 1st, we will be going behind the scenes of designing book covers with Karen Horton, former art director at Henry Holt. Talk to you in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. You can find show notes with all the books mentioned in the episode, purchase links, and linked timestamps at sarahsbookshelves.com slash podcast. And that's Sarah with an H. You can also find me online at sarahsbookshelves.com, on Instagram at sarahsbookshelves, or via email at sarahsbookshelves at gmail.com.